0: All right, all right. Welcome to the Kavachitz Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis And I'm Chris Cervella. The Kavachitz Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services and all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up.
1: The annual defense budget presentation is nearly upon us, but won't be out until after this week's podcast. We'll dive deeper into the budget next week with our colleague, Vaga Maradian, so be sure and tune in to the Defense and Aerospace Report daily podcast on Tuesday, March 14th. And the August decision between Australia, the United Kingdom and United States about how to go about building nuclear submarines for Australia is likely to be announced Monday, March 13th. So next week is indeed shaping up to be a busy one.
0: But today we're looking not at the future, but at the past, as in how to preserve maritime ships and heritage so current generations can understand how their ancestors went to sea. Chris Rouson, Executive Director of the Historic Ships of Baltimore, which includes the 1850s Sloop Constellation, will clue us in on what it takes to maintain ships from the 19th and 20th centuries in good enough shape to entertain and inform people for years to come. But first, a look at this week's naval news.
1: Turkey's new amphibious assault ship, Anadolu, was apparently delivered in January to the Turkish Navy, although no public announcement was made at the event. The 28,000-ton ship, largest warship ever to serve in the Turkish Navy, is based on the Juan Carlos I design from Navantia and is similar to two ships in the Australian Navy. Intended to operate F-35B Joint Strike Fighters, the ship now will become the world's largest aircraft drone carrier following Turkey's expulsion from the F-35 program. Turkey's drone manufacturer Bayar is working on several unmanned aircraft to operate from the ship, including unmanned fighter jets.
0: Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced March 8th he had renamed another ship due to its namesake having connections with the former Confederate States of America. The survey ship USNS Mori, TAGS-66 is now USNS Marie Tharp, honoring the geologist and oceanographer who pioneered current understandings of plate tectonics and continental drift. Matthew Maury, while still revered in many circles for his work as a mid-19th century oceanographer and pathfinder of the seas, also joined the Confederate Navy and worked as an envoy for the Confederacy. The survey ship was the fourth U.S. Navy ship to honor Maury.
1: Japan on March 7th commissioned the new frigate Makuma, the fourth in the Magomi class of stealthy frigates. Japan plans to build a total of 22 of the ships. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News.
0: All right, well, today we are not going to talk about the threat from China, the U.S. Navy budget, the promise of new technology. Rather, today we're going to focus in on maritime heritage, on efforts to preserve and present ships from the past to give you and yours a chance to see how it was done way back when. With us is the Executive Director of Historic Ships of Baltimore, Chris Rousam, Chris, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Chris. Uh, pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, listen, I'd like to pause just a moment here to also note that no one, not named Chris, will be allowed to appear on this edition of the Cavishers Podcast. My partner, Chris Cervello, our guest, Chris Rousem, and I have all agreed to this as a one-time special event. So let's just move on. Many of our listeners are familiar with some of the museum and memorial ships around the world, especially the United States. Some of those ships, like most of the battleships and aircraft carriers, tend to get regular publicity and enjoy fairly solid support from their localities. Other groups are continually scratching, working hard just to keep what they have from deteriorating further. The ships in Baltimore are a particularly eclectic collection, drawing from several distinctly different eras and missions. Chris, can you just tell us about, tell us about your ships before we even get to the organization and how you do this stuff? What is your collection consist of?
2: Sure. Uh, we have four ships and a lighthouse in our collection. So yes, I suppose it is is a is an eclectic mix. Um, the uh, flagship, what I like to think of as the flagship of the fleet, is the uh, 1854 Sloop of War USS Constellation. Um, many of your listeners may know that the First constellation, uh, the frigate built was built here in Baltimore in 1797. Um, supposedly, there are eight pieces of the original frigate in our ship. We don't know where they are, um, but uh, that's from a newspaper account right at the very um, when when this ship was launched in uh, 1854 um, down in Portsmouth, Virginia, at uh, what was then known. Uh, as the Gosport Navy Yard. So uh, Constellation is our is our flagship and right up at the right up at the head of the inner harbor. And then we also have uh, a light ship, the light ship Chesapeake, um, number 116. Um, and uh, Chesapeake uh, was uh, launched in 1930. Um, and uh, did uh I think four 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 tours of duty during her career, started off uh, Fenwick Island, Delaware, um, moved to the Chesapeake, mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, And then during World War II, she was actually stationed up in uh, Massachusetts Bay, actually had some armament on board, um, and then moved back uh, after the war to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay until 1965. She finished up her career off the Delaware Bay. Um, and then uh, we have the light, uh, I'm sorry, the submarine Torsk, uh, World War II, late World War II era Tench uh, class submarine uh, has the distinction of having sunk the last two uh, enemy combatants of World War II in the Pacific theater. So um, she's a, a ship, definitely a boat, I should say, um, with, some, uh, with some great history. Uh, we have a Coast Guard Cutter as well, uh, one of the secretary class, um, the Coast Guard Cutter WHEC-37, um, formerly known as the Roger B. Taney. Um, and uh, so the uh, Cutter 37 is the last warship still afloat to witness the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in, uh, in, at the uh, during World War II. Um, And then finally, um, where I'm sitting right now is the seven-foot Knoll Lighthouse, which marked the entrance to the Patapsco River and Baltimore Harbor uh, starting in 1856. And uh, the lighthouse was uh, uh, in service up until 1988 when the uh, Coast Guard donated it to the city And uh, so she was. the 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 lighthouse was then moved to uh, where it where it sits right now on Pier Five. So that's our that's our collection.
0: So one of the things I'm I'm curious about. We're obviously coming out of at least hopefully coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, The world was shut down. That's a major source of revenue for you. Is people visiting your ships donating? Um, if nobody can come, they probably aren't going to donate that much. You're not going to get that much. Uh, you like every other, um, establishment dependent on people coming, Mm -hmm. uh, is that a problem? And, you know, you, you can only do so much online. Um, what's your, what's your health of, of the, of the organization right now, as you come out of the pandemic, how did you make it through? Was there any, any lasting effects? Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Um, yeah, I think the the health of our organization is uh, is pretty good. Um, you know, we are like like you say. You know, when you're not open, uh, that that definitely curtails your ability to generate revenue, and that revenue is what we use to help keep the ships afloat. So, you know, yard periods and maintenance and things like that. Um, the uh, um, we do happen to be, uh, you know. A, Many historic ships are, you know, by their own on their own as a singular organization, um, uh, and that can oftentimes make things challenging. Um, historic ships in Baltimore is actually part of a larger organization here in in the city um, called Living Classrooms Foundation. So, you know, while you know the ships definitely have to uh, pay their way. Um, the being part of a larger organization sometimes, um, you know, helps us get through the uh, the, the tougher times. Um, we did um, benefit from some uh, nonprofit uh, grant funding, um, you know, COVID grant funding during the during the pandemic, um, which really helped us. Um, a lot.
0: Now, was that mostly federal or state or both?
2: No, it was uh, it was City. state funding actually.
0: Uh, I'm sorry. It was what funding?
2: It was state funding. Yeah, okay. it was uh, uh, state um, uh, for nonprofit museums and attractions that uh, that really helped us out. Um, uh, I think probably the the biggest problem that we've had coming out of the pandemic, the challenge, and I know it's a challenge for many, many organizations still is um, you know, it, I, I had to lay off 40 people in one day. <laughs> wow. Um
0: and Fort, it, 40 out of how many?
2: 40 out of uh about 43. Oh. Um, so uh I managed to hang on to a couple people a few days a week, uh, just to, you know, make sure that the ships were still afloat and, uh, but basically all activity stopped um, for, for at least a year, pretty much all, all activity pretty much stopped. Um, and uh, um, it's been hard bringing that back, um, even now two years in, um, it's, you know, the, the labor market's still very tight, and uh, so we're we are challenged to bring on docents, educators, um, maintenance staff. Um, we are able to, you know, right now the the ships are open. Um, we're sort of on our winter hours right now. We hope to get back to seven day operation um, towards the end of this month. Um, it's all staff dependent right now. Um, so that's that's probably been our biggest challenge. Is sort of recreating the, the staffing uh, after the, after the pandemic.
1: Chris, um, I, I want to jump in. Um, I am a Maryland uh, native, grew up in Southern Maryland, uh, spent my childhood visiting um, the Baltimore Inner Harbor, mm-hmm. lifelong Baltimore Oriole fan. still get back there. And uh, I mean, your, your ships and exhibits um, are just as much a part of the Inner Harbor um, iconography is really anything else, uh, in, in Baltimore, you know, whether it's camping yards or the aquarium. Um, I also want to give a shout out to rear Admiral Scott Sanders, Mm -hmm. um, who I I've known forever. He's been on our sister podcast, um, with Vago and, uh, as the the founder and run, owner of the Tobacco Barn Distillery. Yeah. I know he does uh, great work for, for your organization. Um, talk about your role in the community in um, sharing the maritime legacy and the maritime history of not just Baltimore, but the country writ large. For, for many of us, I mean, I, I grew up down in Pax River and had, you know was used to seeing airplanes, but had never really seen Coast Guard and Naval vessels until I came up to Baltimore. Um, You you really do play an important role in kind of telling that maritime story. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? One of the
2: unique things about our collection is the, the uh, time span of maritime, Naval, Coast Guard, uh, military history that, that, that the collection spans from, you know, depending upon, uh, you know, where where you're coming from on the constellation story, it could be as far back as 1797, all the way through to uh, 1986 when uh, when uh, the Coast Guard Cutter was uh, decommissioned. So it's a great opportunity, you know, when folks come into the city and they want to see some ships to see. Um, you know, really see, you know, back from the um, mid 19th century, all the way up through the 1980s, kind of what life was like on board for sailors who served aboard, you know, I've, I've always said that, um, you know, it's a great way for people to, um, you know, kind of get an appreciation for the service um given by the folks who uh, who sailed aboard our ships, you know, and just learning what life was like, um, particularly on constellation, um you know, the the food that they used to eat, the time that they used to spend out at, at, out at sea um, but but even up to the the Coast Guard cutter and and her um, you know, recent, more recent um, service, um, you know, just what conditions were like. And then, uh, you know, compare that experience to, you know, those of us, you know, I, I personally am not a, I'm not a veteran, um, but I think um, being involved with these ships has really engendered in me a real appreciation of the service and sacrifice that um, those uh, in our armed forces are, you know, give to their give to their country, give to their fellow, fellow citizens. And uh, I think that that's probably one of the more important things that I would like people to come away with um, after they visit our ships. Um, you know, they, it's funny, you know, that, that's sort of the high level. I know that a lot of people when they come on board, um, and I'm gonna I mean, lighten this up just a little bit, you know, a lot of people when they come on board, they wanna know, where, what people ate, where they slept, and where they went to the bathroom. Those are sort of the three things. Those
1: are, those are <laughs> <questions. You> know, <laughs> they are important questions. <laughs> they are.
2: They um, uh, are. I also, um, one of the uh, things I always like to say about Constellation in particular is, uh, you know, that she was always a platform for, uh, for youth education. Um, when she was launched, uh, of course, there were midshipmen on board, junior officers, and also the uh, ship's boys—the uh, the, you know basically kids age 13 to 17 who uh, who sailed on board. The ship was their home, their their school, their place of work. Um, later, when the ship was decom—well, then she was a uh, then after after her active duty service, she was a training ship for the Naval Academy. The primary training ship for the Naval Academy was uh, known uh, as the cradle of admirals, because basically everybody who sailed on board her in the uh, up until the uh, early 1890s became the you know, the the, the, the captains and the admirals that, uh, you know, were all, uh, you know, integral in the uh, in the building of our of what we know now of as our modern navy, back in the uh, at the at the at the beginning of the 20th century, and then uh, post naval academy, the ship was at uh, Naval Station Newport, where she was part of every naval recruits boot camp service, and also um, uh, the training site for the naval apprentice program, which is, as I understand it, kind of what where what what grew out of the the ship's boy tradition uh, was the Naval Apprentice Program. And now uh, we do, we have uh, overnight programs on board Constellation uh, for scout groups and youth groups, school groups, um, as well as the cutter and on the submarine Torst, where, you know, kids, uh, again, in that sort of in that same age group uh, can get a real, Immersive experience, if you will, real hands-on experience, and learn what life was like for for their predecessors. And so, you know that that that's kind of what I that's what I really like to think of. You know, our ships as educational platforms, um, and uh, you know, opportunities for for youth to learn about our learn about our history and. Doing overnight programs, of course, it's an experience that they'll never forget.
1: You know, for our listeners that don't know, I mean, the Navy does um, outreach weeks around the country, uh, some inland, some um, near uh, ports. Uh, they do bring ships into Baltimore uh, on occasion. In fact, they were there uh, last year. Um, you, you do have regular contact with the Navy, right? When they come in and out of Baltimore or the Coast Guard, when they come in and out of Baltimore, can you talk a little bit about what your relationship is with other the Navy and the Coast Guard? Sure,
2: yeah, we uh, actually, I've had the privilege of uh, for the past, uh, well, since 2016 being uh, the, the person who's actually been in charge of running the fleet week here. So um, uh, <laughs> aside from my real job, um, but uh, but we um, managed that program uh, 2016, 2018, uh, did a virtual program in 2020, and then uh, organized the Fleet Week in 2022 um, with uh, partners in the city like Sail Baltimore and 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 uh, and others. Um, but uh, yeah, been working very closely with uh, Naval District Washington during that time. Um, had a actually had a had a really great time just getting to know people there um, and. Uh, um, Meeting the uh, uh, and working with the uh, the folks that are uh, in charge there at Naval District Washington the uh, the commandants that have come that come through and um, they're all you know they're all very excited uh, when we uh, have a Fleet Week here to uh, show off the Navy in Baltimore and Baltimore really um, that the you know the city has a number of festivals during the year. Um, big festivals, you know, and, uh, but I think, and I think most people who know ships and know the Inner Harbor will agree that when there are ships in town, be they Navy ships or uh, sailing uh, training ships, uh, when those ships are in town, that the city just shines really, really brightly. And, and people love coming down to our Inner Harbor. We actually, I, I, I'm a big Inner Harbor booster here, um, and I, and I should be because uh, you know we're we we are a big stakeholder here, um, but uh, Baltimore has an am- Baltimore's waterfront is amazing in its public access, um, not. Every city, and I should say, even very few cities on the East Coast and West Coast have uh, a waterfront like Baltimore's, where it is where the where the public access is so easy, and so it's great for uh, when when the Navy comes in, when the Coast Guard comes in, um, and they want to uh, engage with the public. Um, it is it is comparatively easy. Um, to do that. And uh, I think that's one of the things that the Navy really likes about coming to Baltimore. Um, besides the fact that, uh, you know, when we have international vessels here, the uh, proximity to Washington is always very helpful um, to uh, those folks as well. It's easy, It's great for, uh, you know, naval attaches, etc., cetera, from um, different uh, countries to, uh, you know, have, have their ships come to Baltimore because it's a lot harder to get them to Washington um, have them come to Baltimore. And then we've got, you know, relatively easy access between DC and Baltimore. But uh, yeah, the Baltimore waterfront is something that, uh, you know, we are very, very proud of. And, uh, and I think, I think the city is as, as a whole as well. So,
1: well- Chris, I will let uh, my my partner ask one more question, but I will say I I will be um, I'll be up in the D.C. area the first week of April and then for um, the Navy League's uh, national conference. But I will sneak over to Baltimore uh, on that Thursday for the Baltimore Orioles opening day against the Yankees. And I'm going to build some time in to come down and say hello to you and check out your exhibits again. So thanks
0: for joining us. And I'll let Chris ask the last question. Okay, well, I don't know if I have a question so much as just an appreciation. Uh, you and I, uh, Mr. Rousam, I have to say the Rousam because we're all, I can't say Chris here. Um, we, we, we first met um, a few months ago. Actually, I came over to um, Sparrows Point where you had the Constellation in Dry Dock, yeah. and uh, that was truly fascinating just to be able to walk underneath the ship. Um, I was astounded to understand, you know, frankly, about 50% of the ship is original, which is for a wooden ship, yeah, just blew me away. I mean, the the the, the percentage of original original material in the Constitution uh, up in Boston is really, I mean, it's in the single digits because all all wood rots and wood gets replaced over time. It's true yeah. with any old, old wooden ship, but um, really, a, just a fantastic ship, uh, great shape. Looks to be in great shape. I you know i i mean I've been going in and out of Baltimore all my life. Uh, I'm I'm am a DC moron. I'm a DC person. But uh, my daughter actually is a, has been living in Baltimore for 10 years. She lives up in Mount Vernon. Uh, loves the place It was going to stay there. Um, and when she was a, when she was in school, she did an overnight on the within yeah. the Tawny, uh, and I I was thrilled that she you know got to experience that. Yeah. Um, that was that that really is old school. It is a 1930 ship. It's a great ship. That was an incredibly successful class of cutter uh, that gave gave long service to the U.S. to the U.S. Coast Guard, um, and it you know it's sort of interesting that the you know you like like a lot of institutions around the country are going through this you know uh, name change mm-hmm. issue where where names are no longer appropriate. You know I, I have to confess I went to Roger B. Tawney because that's how the family says it. Roger B. Tawney, junior high school in yeah. Camp Springs, Maryland. And even then, by way back in the last century, um, and I mean, I have to admit, I, I wondered, you know, is that really appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when they would teach the Drew Scott case, it's like, okay, so this guy's name, yeah. Anyway, the school today is named Fergus Marshall Middle School, mm-hmm. but um, so you've you've not you can't rename the ship because it's, it's it's historic ship, uh, and you you refer to it by the hull number now, WHC thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Teeny is how the is how people on the Coast Guard referred yes. to it so it's like either way is correct depending on your frame of reference um but uh, you know the, the constant constellation i mean i i, I clearly remember me way back in the 70s really um because i started going to baltimore a whole lot more when when they stole my my baseball team from washington mm-hmm. um, and you'd go down the inner harbor and you'd sit and have some ice cream and sit on the steps and look at that hole and it was just the most amazing example of hogging anybody had ever seen hogging is where uh, any I mean, most ships either sag in the middle over time or hog where the ends drop and it comes up in the middle Mm -hmm. and um, it looked like it was just if it just sat there forever it would fall apart it just would deteriorate and collapse and appear in hundreds if not thousands upon thousands of wooden ships that's exactly how they ended their days they just fell apart um the ship was rebuilt beginning in the nineties. In the mm-hmm. And that was a really, really dicey operation. It was, uh, it was, it, it had, it was full of risk. Um, you, you did what, maybe half a mile across the Harbor to, um, to a shipyard, um, near Fort McHenry. And, right. and even that was really, really dangerous. It could have just broken up at any point and that would have been bad. Um, but she looks fantastic now. I mean, over the years, I, I know you've dry docked I think at least three times, mm-hmm. um, and the, the preservation that you all have done there is and restoration is uh, is really amazing. I mean, that's I I, I know it's your flagship. Um, people like the submarine too. You, know, you can't you can't you can't miss the torsk. I remember the torsk when it was a reserve training ship of the Washington Navy Yard. Um, matter of fact, but um, because I'm that old guy, said it. Uh, but I really I mean the the job you all do at, at keeping this eclectic group you know you, you need spare parts you need to build new parts you need people who are experienced in different eras to deal with the the, the equipment on the ships mm-hmm. uh, it really is impressive and um, I mean, I, I just want to take my hat off to you for that um, you know the work the work y'all do constellation is just a just a, a gem and uh, it, it was it was part of the thing is that you know, people people think, oh, the the, the boat, the, the ship is now a museum; it gets preserved. Okay, that's it; it's 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 just forever and ever. No, 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 no. Museum ships fail all the time, mm-hmm. um, and that ship easily could have just broken up and fallen apart. Um, I think, you know, the, I mean, can you talk just to just to just briefly about that? About you know the efforts you do to to try to keep all this these these ships oper not I mean operating as museum ships, but they're they're afloat. Yeah you're, not, yeah. you're not, you're not on shore and, um, can just, you know, that's, it's a, it's a never ending effort, I guess is what I'm trying to get. Yeah.
2: It, it's definitely a challenge. Um, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you think it would be better to, you know, just put, put the ships up on land and put them in a glass box or something like that, if you could. Um, but even then, um, you know, there are examples of ships that, have, you know, that have been put up on land and they still deteriorate just as fast. But being in the marine environment is a challenge. But I think it, um, you know, it probably gives us an, a little bit of an advantage in that, you know, we can say that the ships are still afloat. You know, they're not just being they're not just being put in a glass box, um, but it does. It does uh, bring its challenges, um, you know, for the for the steel ships. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in, you know, sort of brackish water here. We're not in real salt water, but, um, you know, still, uh, are the, the, the steel ships are subject to, uh, uh, deterioration below the waterline due to, uh, you know, galva- regular, just old galvanic action. And, well, then, you know, go- th-
0: the Navy's display ship, the Barry that they had at the Washington Navy Yard, yeah. deteriorated on the scene in the, in the Potomac, actually yeah. not in the Anacostia. Yeah, to yeah. The point well, where where still, they couldn't repair it. There's still stray
2: electrical currents float, flying around, especially when you're next to a pier, you know? So you've got to guard against that. Um, wooden ships um, rot from the top down. Freshwater is the bane of their existence, you know? So we try and keep things, um, you know, we're literally just salted on the wooden ship, um, you know, because salt pickles the wood um, and things that uh, rot wood will not live in salt. So, uh, so we use salt or, or uh, borate is, uh, is another um, wood preservative. Both of those are human friendly as opposed to some of the other things that uh, people have used in the over the years, uh, which are not uh, which are not as uh, friendly to to us and our and, and our bodies, but um, uh, yeah, it it is a challenge, um, and uh, it's it's a you know funding is always a challenge. Um, you know, as of right now, the you know the ships aren't a line item in anybody's budget right now. You know, any federal or state or city budget. So any funding that we get is uh, either from individuals who are, you know, really interested in what we are doing and how we're doing it or from competitive grants. Um, there are uh, some regular programs here in the state of Maryland that we take advantage of. Maryland Heritage Areas Authority, Maryland Historical Trust, um, some Baltimore City capital funding, but it's all competitive. Um, so And there are a lot of mouths to feed out there. So. Um, So we, you know, when we're putting our proposals together for projects, we, you know, we really, um, you know, we really have to sell it. Um, So, uh, and that's the same with working with individuals too, individual donors, you know, they're, people don't uh, open their pocketbooks for just anything, you know, they, they, they want to know that their funding is going to be used, uh, used for a purpose and used responsibly, used properly. And I think we do a, I think we do
0: a good job of that, um, but all right. Well, I've, I mean, I've, I've seen the evidence of it. I really have. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the time we've got today, but this has really been a great discussion. And and again, again I mean, I, I certainly appreciate, you know, the, the the importance of of honoring our maritime heritage all through the generations that came before us. Mm-hmm. Um, without without that, we wouldn't be a country. The world would wouldn't be what it is. And uh, right. It, 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 this is this, this is important stuff. I'm glad you do it and thanks for being be, being here our folks our, our guest has been chris Rousem, the executive director of historic ships of baltimore um, get out this summer get out this spring get some see some stuff see some good stuff it really is it, it really is worth it thanks for being here chris all right thank you for having me This has been fun
1: now is this now is this you know what that means it's time for squawk box and this week mr cavis looks at the seemingly inexplainable strategic pause around the Navy's amphibious program.
0: Thanks, Chris. Well, the Navy's working on a new next-generation air dominance fighter to replace the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, and the service is still buying F-35s. Work is also ongoing to succeed today's Virginia-class submarines with a new SSN-X design, and the Navy continues to buy new subs. The surface warfare community is studying the DDG-X, the follow-on warship to current Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, even while ordering two new destroyers every year. None of those new programs have been finalized, and procurement of fighters, submarines, and destroyers continues apace. But when it comes to the San Antonio-class amphibious dock transport, it seems the Navy cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro is now talking about a strategic pause to study whether or not the Flight 2 design of those ships is what they need for the future this despite a major study only a few years ago that did just that and came up with the current design already in production. The Navy and Marine Corps also just concluded a long-awaited amphibious force requirement study and, after promising for months to release the results, Navy leaders decided in late December to classify the study, preventing anyone without a security clearance the opportunity to read, consider, and discuss its results. And now there's apparently a need for even more study and apparently one so involved that the service thinks it best if it simply stops ordering new ships until it can decide what it wants. In the meantime, the Navy will continue decommissioning older amphibious ships and will be unable to maintain the 31 ship amphibious force level. It's so very publicly agreed to just a year ago to keep pace with Marine Corps requirements, a level that Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger is calling an absolute floor because the Marines really want 38 ships. We can't do with one less, Berger told USNI News, referring to the 31-ship Amphib Force. Well, not only that, but Congress included that 31-ship level in the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act just passed in December. In other words, it's the law. Well, these ships are being built at Huntington Ingalls Industries in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And before I go any further, I need to acknowledge that HII is our primary sponsor. But that is not why I'm talking about this. I'm talking about it because I've followed the LPD program for more than 20 years. I've been on several of the ships, have been to sea on one, and I know that the San Antonios are far more capable than the old Whidbey Island-class landing ship docks they're replacing. Exponentially more capable, and they sure aren't cheap at about $2 billion each. But the Navy is not citing cost as the reason for this pause. They simply say they want to study the issue. So now it appears that when the 2024 budget request comes out on March 13th, it will show no new LPD amphibious ships being produced or procured for at least the next five years. Right now they're built at the rate of one every other year. A five-year pause will seriously disrupt their supply chain, probably result in layoffs and English shipbuilding, and will mean that if and when the program is restarted, it will take longer to resume production, and costs will inevitably be higher, probably significantly so. We are in a race with China. China is outbuilding us at a rate the United States can never hope to match. The Chinese are watching. They're continually gauging their fleet against ours. A pause is not a signal we should be sending to China, who, by the way, just built eight ships like these LPDs and are building more. There is no question that leaders of any serious organization should continually be evaluating and reevaluating what they do. There's also no question that in order to do such work, there is no compelling reason to stop what you're already doing simply to study something else, and especially when there are very recent studies that nominally should already have informed the issue. So what is going on here? Is this some sort of Navy-Marine Corps squabble? There's no question that two-brother services do not always get along even while their leaders declare they're all on the same page. But this strategic pause, strategic as if, seems like it might be coming from from something else, perhaps coming from higher up in the Pentagon. I suspect it's coming from people who really don't understand what they're talking about. I really don't know what the story is. But I do know there is nothing strategic about it. Thanks, Chris. A head-scratcher indeed. Well,
1: that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group
0: for their support. The Cavalish Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right.
1: Be sure to follow us at Cavalish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>